Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I don't know if I ever imagined myself having children until I met Erica, who made it very clear and she went to have children very shortly after we met, probably like a week after. It was a challenging conversation. I was pretty adamant. Erica Hart and Ebony Donley are trying to start a family. Many of us have probably had similar discussions with our own partners about how many kids we want, when we want to have them, or if we want to have kids at all. It's a major life decision, and one that you sometimes don't have as much control over as you think. I think it's a challenge for any queer family to begin the family plan, but especially a black, queer, and trans family to do so at any time. Because Ebony is a transgender man, he doesn't make his own sperm. So the couple is trying to find a sperm donor, but not just any donor. They want to find one that's like Ebony. I wish Ebony and I could make a child. That's what's most ideal. So in thinking about who would be the donor, you know, you want to match up to the best of your ability. At least that's what we wanted for us. So in personality and looks, even some things like intellect and politics, even though they may be nurture. My main concern was that they were Black, obviously. Um, Not just because I'm Black, just because I, I believe in... I don't know, like having a black family. (laughs) I grew up in a black family. Eric has a black family. So that, that was a huge priority for me. Erica has a master's in human sexuality and is a sex educator. Yet she says the whole assisted reproduction process has been so confusing, even for her. So much of my training has been based in how to abstain from pregnancy versus how to get pregnant. So I really had to immerse myself like a student again on, you know, what does it look like to get pregnant as a queer person? I know how pregnancy works, right? But when you get sperm, what what are we doing with it, right? Like, what does IUI look like? What is the process and the hormones that are involved with IVF? The couple have just begun their fertility journey, and they got no idea if the treatments are actually going to work. Like Erica and Ebony, many people, for one reason or another, can't conceive without some help. According to the CDC, one in 11 married women are infertile. But that just counts married women. There isn't much data at all on how big an issue this is for single women, men, or those in the LGBTQ community. And access to treatments also isn't easy. It's expensive, it's not always covered by insurance, and it's harder to get for those within LGBTQ, minority, and low-income communities, and yet, we rarely talk about it. So, for today's episode, I'm going to hand things over to my colleague, CNN reporter Chloe Malas. She's been covering this topic for years, and for her, it's really personal. Remember, though, talking about trying to conceive is intimate. It does require talking about sex, That means maybe this episode might not be appropriate 
for young listeners. It's time to talk about making babies as we start chasing life. Many people have really struggled this past year to make a family. Some had to halt fertility treatments during lockdown. Some got COVID while they were pregnant. Others questioned whether it's the right time to have children now, or even ever. Everything that happened with Black Lives Matter, the election, the insurrection, just to name three, I don't feel like the world is a welcoming place for a kid. As an ambitious CEO and founder of my own company, I was always on the go. But when the pandemic hit, it really caused me to stop, breathe, and reflect on life and what I value. Really underscored the need for me to build a legacy and also have a a family. We started prepping for an egg retrieval. And that was when I got like that most devastating phone call that everything was shut down and nobody knew when it was going to pick back up. Ultimately, the pandemic really made us feel like if we were going to be quarantined and stuck inside, we really wanted our family unit to be really full of love and fun and energy. And so we felt like adding a third little girl to the mix would be perfect for us. And I had some months of not getting pregnant and I had a miscarriage. And then ultimately I did get pregnant. My son was born in April. And when I think about how he came into this world, I think he was born out of hope. And I... I really want that hope to inform his life. The decisions surrounding whether to have children, when, or even how, are hard. As Sanjay mentioned, this issue is personal for me. My husband, Brian, and I got married in 2014. And after a year thought, I'm 28, he's 30, it's time to have kids. But it wasn't that simple. Recently, I sat down with Brian to talk, quite candidly, about our struggle to make a family. For me, I was just thinking, okay, we'll try, and that meant just us, you know, having sex, and hopefully it would be a very easy process. I didn't expect that it would be difficult or what we were about to go through. I'll never forget, we were out to dinner, and I had a phone call from my doctor, with Brian's results of his semen analysis. Ironically, the name of the restaurant we were at was The Meatball Shop. So, like, I don't know (laughs) what the chances are of that. But I went outside, and she just said, Brian's numbers are way below normal. You're going to need to see a fertility specialist. And um, I'm really sorry. I mean, my stomach hit the floor. I was disappointed in myself. I was shocked that something that we wanted to do we couldn't do because usually you know through our own hard work and grit and determination we usually accomplish our goals and this is something that I felt helpless right it was out of my control really and when we started going through the IVF process my doctor dropped a bombshell and he said Chloe 
whoever told you that your blood work was, you know, stars and, you know, rainbows and unicorns, that's not true. You have low ovarian egg reserve. So again, now, you know, another shoe drops. Things were so palpable in our relationship. You could cut the tension with a knife. I would say, Brian, our marriage hit rock bottom. I just remember also thinking maybe we won't be together. And we had conversations. Yeah. And and I've said I've said this to you many times during that process. Like, hey, this is my issue. And, you know, I'm I'm sorry for it, but I don't want to neglect you from trying to have kids or get be able to get pregnant. So, you know, maybe we we split up. Maybe you go find someone that can get you pregnant and we go our separate ways. But I told you that was crazy and that No, I mean, I couldn't believe that not only were we, you know, trying to start a family, now we're talking about divorce. I mean, we're talking about going from point A to point Z. I mean, this is a roller coaster. We ended up finding out two weeks later that we were pregnant. Nine months later, a little early, three weeks early, we gave birth to Leo, who's going to be four years old in just a couple weeks. This whole process, though, sucked out any sort of enjoyment of the pregnancy for us to enjoy. And I never had heard of anybody having fertility problems before. Brian, had you ever heard of any of your friends or family going through IVF? No, I did. I honestly didn't know what it really meant. I felt like a lot of people still didn't know what it meant when we started to talk about it. I would say the biggest reason why we want to share is we don't want people to suffer in silence. We want everybody to know that there are so many people going through this, going to bed crying, waking up crying, being sad all day, and that being angry at the woman in the grocery store in front of you who's pregnant is totally okay. It isn't fair. and Life's not fair. And it was really hard. And it almost, like, ruined us. I think vulnerability shows a certain level of being masculine and I think more of us need to tap into that and let other men know that it's okay to discuss things that might not on the surface make you feel strong or have this bravado of this image of a man that you want to keep up but we all go through some shit in our life that unfortunately isn't the case but it does not make you any less of a man it wasn't easy for my husband and me to have kids But our story had a happy ending. Now we have two beautiful little boys, Leo and Luke. We know that isn't always the case for everyone. There are so many barriers to combating infertility that Brian and I were fortunate to overcome and afford. Infertility is a rich person's problem. No, rich people can afford infertility treatment. That doesn't mean that this is a rich person's problem. That's Dr. Tia Jackson-Bay. She's a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist at Reproductive Medicine Associates in New York. Infertility affects all people equally, and actually, it may be higher concentrated in poor, in minority, in underserved persons because they may not have access to basic level care. I've interviewed Dr. Jackson Bay for some of my past reporting on infertility, so she was the first person I thought of to discuss some of the barriers people face when trying to have kids. And it doesn't just involve cost. Listen, this is a healthcare issue. This is, you know, in some cases, healthcare crisis. 
it deserves as much attention and respect as we give to other medical diagnoses. I was doing a story for CNN.com about the inequities of fertility coverage in the United States. And then I started looking at Europe and Israel, and I found that the United States falls so short compared to other countries um, when it comes to how many babies each year are being born through things like IVF. And I don't understand why. Yeah, I don't either. (laughs) I think it really boils down to the priorities at a national level of the country. And so unfortunately, if you are diagnosed with infertility, you may not have the proper tools or the finances to address or treat your issue, which is very different than other medical conditions like cancer, or if you require dialysis from end-stage renal disease, or if you require a hip replacement, those things are, are more likely to be covered on your health insurance than infertility. When I was going through IVF, I had many people ask me, how much is it costing? I feel like many people don't see infertility as a disease and see it more like a privilege, a champagne problem. You know, luckily my husband and I were able to have a financial means to cover it. Can we talk about how so many underserved communities aren't even getting access to fertility treatments? Because infertility and infertility diagnosis, treatment, evaluation um, historically has not been covered by insurance, it became somewhat of a cash industry, right? You had to be able to pay for it out of pocket in order to pursue treatment. Uh, As a result, yes, fertility clinics would be in places where persons could afford to pay out of pocket. You know, the average cost of IVF in this country is maybe about $12,500, but that can easily go up to close to $20,000 per cycle when you include medication, when you include other things that may need to be done, you know, on the laboratory side for IVF to be successful. And so, you know, this is a very expensive endeavor and treatment option. And so I think historically, yes, the fertility clinics tend to be in places where persons can afford that care. But that doesn't mean that people in other areas also are not in need or deserving of the services as well. After the break, we'll talk more about how we can address these disparities and also how we can help overcome the stigma around infertility. And now, back to Chasing Life and more of my conversation with fertility expert Dr. Tia Jackson Bay. According to the research, there is a racial disparity when it comes to who is more impacted by infertility. Uh, Can you talk about some specific examples of this? Across the board, infertility does not discriminate. You know, there are no groups that are immune to it, despite, you know, who we may see in infertility clinics. You know, one thing that I always find interesting is that there are some studies that point to African-American women, Hispanic women, and even some Asian women having higher rates of infertility than uh, Caucasian women. Yet when you go into fertility clinics, you know, one thing is a feedback from some patients of color is that they don't see anyone else who looks like them, stating that the clinics are usually, you know, full of white women. The definition of infertility is basically the inability to get pregnant after one year of regular unprotected sex. So where does that leave the LGBTQ community? 
What we see sometimes with same-sex couples is because if there's a same-sex female couple, if there's, you know, no demonstrated infertility due to lack of sperm exposure is a term that's used, it won't be covered. Even for something as, you know, simple as an intrauterine insemination where sperm is placed inside the uterus and typically how they would achieve pregnancy. And so that places another undue burden on this community of, of course, when they're trying to start a family to have to, you know, either pay out of pocket or to find loopholes. And same for same sex male couples, you know, um, going through surrogacy to um, build their families can be extremely expensive. And further, you know, same sex couples or LGBTQ family building of any kind can even be prohibited or thwarted from adoption and fostering. You know, some states don't universally allow these couples to foster or adopt children, which is another way that they commonly build families. And so these discriminatory practices are difficult to deal with. They shouldn't be. They're outdated. And, you know, we're working really hard at provider advocate level to really just change them. When my husband and I began our journey to start our family, Dr. Jackson Bay, we didn't know one person that had ever gone through fertility treatments. Come to find out months later, a year later, many people in our inner circle came forward and said that they had been suffering in silence. And so that is a very common theme that we see in infertility. It has a lot to do with shame, with just guilt about decisions. It makes you question so many things, you know, had a glass of wine, I went on this vacation, I you know, chose to do these other things in life or chose to wait to have a family or all of these different things that it can definitely make a person question about themselves. And so there's a lot of kind of guilt wrapped up in that. And so I think, unfortunately, it stops people from talking about it and speaking up. And, you know, as a result, we're all kind of, you know, moving around in the dark without realizing how many other people are in the same room with you. You know, as more people start to be honest with their stories, to be open, it just really helps to decrease the stigma. Because I do think it's important that, you know, persons going through this know that they're not alone. There are so many layers and things to unpack when it comes to infertility in the United States. What do you think needs to happen uh, to make these treatments more accessible for everyone? I think first things universally, infertility should not be something that insurance companies are able to exclude. It is a medical diagnosis. It's no different, you know, and I don't say this to make light of any other uh, medical diagnoses, but it's no different than diabetes or asthma or cancer. It, It deserves to be covered for evaluation and treatment. And we have you know, very good treatment options for infertility, depending on the what's causing the infertility. But so many people are still not able to access it. And so I think, you know, one recognition of infertility as a medical disease and not a social ill, not a rich person's problem, not something to, you know, kind of uh, push off for another day or for those who can afford out-of-pocket costs is, is paramount. But the next part of it is really examining, you know, our healthcare system to say, why is this one thing excluded? I think that some of it lies in a lack of prioritization for women's health. I really do think it stems from that. And we have to kind of get very honest about, you know, what we want for our country and for ourselves and and make those demands. 
But we can't forget not everyone wants to have children, and that's okay. According to the CDC, the number of births in the United States fell by 4% last year, the largest annual decline since 1973. Given the global pandemic, for demographers like Philip Cohen of the University of Maryland, this isn't too surprising. What we've learned in the last century or so is that when there are crises, birth rates go down. And it's partly deliberate, that is, people decide to hold off on having children or decide against having children because they're unsure about the future, they're unsure they'll be able to care for them, they think they might lose their job, they think their mother might lose her job, all the things that go into the calculations of when and whether to have children. 2020 is not an outlier. Cohen says birth rates have been on a downward trend for quite a while. We were sort of focusing on issues like work-family balance, childcare, healthcare, housing, the expenses of raising children and the difficulty of raising children, which had been putting pressure on people to reduce their number of children. That's the main reason. At the same time, when people have more opportunities to do other things in their lives, they're also inclined to have fewer children or delay having children. So especially for women, when opportunities improve, um, the number of children they have tends to go down because on average, they're more likely to choose something else. Hispanic women in particular are seeing some of the largest declines from 2007 to 2017. Birth rates fell by 31%. Experts attribute this drop to more Hispanic women joining the workforce and waiting longer to start families than past generations. Overall, the data doesn't lie. Fewer people are having kids. That could lead to smaller kindergarten classrooms, as well as larger demands on Social Security, given the aging population. But Cohen and others think there could be positives, too. For example, fewer people means less of an environmental impact on the planet. So it's really a glass-half-empty, glass-half-full kind of situation. The point is, I think this pandemic has really made many of us reflect on what we want our futures to look like, including our future families. Some have been inspired to freeze their eggs, some to seek out help for infertility, and some have decided against having kids, while others have been inspired to do so. That includes Erica and Ebony. What I envision five years down the line, 10 years down the line is, Big reading sessions with our family, going on trips. I mean, Eb and I, Eb and I are a family right now, and we are on a family trip cross country. I would love to, you know, expand our family and take, you know, two little Ebony and Erica's across country as well and have them see what we're seeing. I know during the pandemic, my husband and I have been so grateful to be in lockdown with our two amazing boys. We were so close to never having the family that we both dreamed of. We were lucky. But it definitely wasn't easy. It was really hard and painful and not easy to talk about. I hope that changes soon. I know I'm going to tell my sons the story about how they were conceived, starting with my firstborn, Leo. So do you know what this picture is right here? Yeah. I'm a burrito. Not a burrito. You are an embryo embryo. in this picture. How did mommy and daddy make you? It's called I love you. Yes, but it's also, it's called I V 
U-F. I-V-F. I-V-F. Yep. So every time you look at this picture, you're going to remember how much Mommy and Daddy love you. Love you. Love you. I want to thank Chloe Malas for addressing such an important and such a really personal issue. I think we can all learn something from her story. So thanks again, Chloe. And as we mentioned earlier, infertility affects so many people and experts say there are measures we can all take early on to prevent issues later down the road, such as talking to your doctor about your future family plans years before you start trying. Ask them to check your egg reserve, your sperm count. And most importantly, if you're having issues trying to conceive, don't suffer alone. Talk about it, especially with your friends and your family. You're not alone. Before we go, I thought it was a good time to set the record straight on a question that we get a lot from folks. Is it safe for pregnant people to get the COVID-19 vaccine? Now, according to the CDC, experts say the vaccine is unlikely to pose a risk for people who are pregnant or their fetuses. What we do know for certain, though, is pregnant people are more likely to get severely ill from COVID-19. That's compared to people who are not pregnant. And the virus also increases the risk of preterm birth, which can have its own consequences for the baby. It's a risk assessment. COVID versus the vaccine. But as always, if you have any concerns or questions, talk to your doctor about it. Please keep the questions coming. We really want to hear from you. We have an episode, for example, coming up that's all about the Olympics. Given COVID restrictions, the games are going to be unlike any other before. There's going to be no foreign fans. There's going to be no plus ones for athletes. There's no cheering. Not having that social support in Tokyo is going to be tough. I can only imagine for these athletes. But this past year, we've all kind of had to get creative about showing our support from a distance. So tell me, how are you there for people in their highest and lowest points during this pandemic? How'd you do it? Record your thoughts as a voice memo and email them to asksanjay at cnn.com. We might even include them on the next podcast. We'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening. Chasing Life is a production of CNN Audio. Megan Marcus is executive producer. Zoe Saunders is the senior producer. This episode was produced by Rachel Cohn, Jordan Gosperay, Paige Sutherland, Audrey Horwitz, and Grace Walker. Our medical writer is Andrea Kane. Tommy Bazarian is our engineer. And a special thanks to Ben Tinker and Amanda Seeley of CNN Health, as well as Ashley Lusk, Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, and Daniel Cantor from CNN Audio. One last request. If you like what you've heard today, please rate and review the podcast. I really want to hear what you think, and it will also help others discover the show. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.